From our offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I am Andrew Leadham, and with me today, as usual, are Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute in Washington, D.C., and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum over in London. On today's episode, we will be speaking with Mark Selby. Mark is the CTO of Series Power, based in the UK, and he joined us on the show to tell us a bit about what the team over at Series are up to these days and to enlighten us on the topic of solid oxide fuel cells and solid oxide electrolyzers. Before we get started, I wanted to quickly remind our listeners that we have recently changed our contact details here at Everything About Hydrogen. And for those of you who would like to get in touch with us, our new email address is info at h2podcast.com. So if you have any questions for us or our guests, please don't hesitate to drop us an email there going forward. For those of you who prefer to communicate with us in 280 characters or less at a time, you can still find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen as well. If you enjoy the Everything About Hydrogen podcast, please do leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. We have a rapidly growing audience already, and we are delighted by that, but we believe the more the merrier here at Everything About Hydrogen, and those positive reviews really help us reach more listeners. All right, admin matters aside, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Mark Selby of Series Power on today's show, and let's get started. All right, Patrick, Chris has abandoned us for today, uh, you know, standard Chris Jackson. So uh, we're on our own. That means we get to uh, take uh, cheap shots at him while he's not here. Uh, but before we do that, uh, why don't we discuss the big news of the week, which of course will be a little bit old by the time this comes out, but nonetheless, big news. Airbus coming out with, what was it, three suggested tracks for uh, hydrogen-powered planes. And now I've got my, my text going off in the background, but Airbus. Yeah. Airbus has three three new designs coming out or three proposed prototype designs, correct? Uh, what, what, what does that mean? What does that mean for the aviation market? Uh, what does it mean? It means that uh, one of the largest, or I think it might be, might be the, the largest, I'm not sure whether itself or Boeing is bigger, but um, one of the largest uh, aircraft manufacturers in the world is actively contemplating the prospect of zero carbon aviation in a in a meaningful and tangible way right so you you know the three models it was interesting just just in case folks haven't seen them one one of them is a is a, is a twin propeller uh, kind of plane the other is kind of more standard or conventional looking kind of one and the last one seems to be something that resembles like a a stealth fighter. Uh, it's it's like it, it's, <laughs> the, the last one caught my eye. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, like like, um, and and I haven't had a chance to read up about exactly what the three different designs are intended for. Do you know what what that third uh, sort of B two bomber thing is uh, intended for? I think it's it's a design style that folks have talked about for a little while around a blended wing structure. So you know, essentially, rather than having a central column and the wings kind of tacked onto the sides. It's it's you know the wings are the the central body and it seems like they're using either putting people or storing things in in that space as well. And it's 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 much smaller looking kind of capacity. So I don't know whether it's um, particularly aimed at kind of storage or sorry freight kind of style transport or whether it's uh, some version of a, a super fast quasi Concorde esque uh, 
kind of luxury unit. But I, I, yeah, like, look, that's the, the, you know, for us, that's the secondary interest, right? <laughs> no, you, you mean you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to debate the relative advantages of, of fixed wing or Delta style aircraft over the typical 737 design? Well, hey, Mark, how are you doing? Hi, Andrew. Very well, thanks. You? Good, good. Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Thanks. Hi, Patrick. Hi, guys. If you wouldn't mind, Mark, would you uh, just fill us in on who Series Power are and uh, what the company does and a little bit about uh, your position at Series? Yeah, okay. Um, thanks, Andrew. I have to give a lot of answers to who Sarah's are and, and what we do. And in some ways, a lot of it depends a little bit on my audience. I'm so Ceres is an electrochemical technologies company. Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, we're, we're best known for developing and licensing fuel cell technology. So we've, we've spent 20 years pioneering a completely different way of, of making a solid oxide fuel cell. And over the last few years, we've transformed that into a, a licensing business model. So um, a bit like an ARM Holdings, doesn't matter whether you've got a Samsung phone or an iPhone, you've still got an ARM processor in it. And, and the vision for Ceres is uh, it doesn't matter whether you buy a product from uh, one of our licensees in Germany, Bosch, or one in China who's Weichai, you've still got Ceres technology inside. And really, that's the sort of heart of where we are as a business and what we've been doing. The reason I say we're an electrochemical technologies company is because we, we do a lot more than fuel cells. We also do electrolysis, and we're also really strong sort of human capital and talent in the business. Uh, and we're really looking to grow that and look at more ways we can we can use those skills and talents in the business and think about a much broader way we can have a really positive impact on the energy system. So just to, to focus on the, uh, the fuel cell, so, I'm sorry, fuel cell and electrolyzer side of the, the business just for a second, you know, for some of our listeners who, who that might be a, a, new, uh, a new technology or something they maybe have heard in passing, you know, how, how do you distinguish between the, the SOFCs maybe and, and some of the more kind of regular kind of fuel cell technologies that we hear about? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. Um, and and I'll, I'll come to it. I guess one of the things I'd say in general before we dive into that is fuel cells and electrochemical technologies um, are really close to batteries. And, and I think what you see in the battery industry for over decades is there are lots of different technologies that get used for lots of different applications. So if you want to start a car, you put a lead acid battery in it. If you want to run a mobile phone, you put a lithium ion in it. If you want something for your remote control, it's an alkaline cell. So there's lots of different chemistries in batteries and the same is true in fuel cells. So I guess the two that people have really heard of are, are solid oxide and, and pen. And they're, they're different for some reasons, but, but there's a long list of other chemistries as well. The big differences between solid oxide and PEM, one is a high temperature device and it's completely sort of fuel omnivorous, eats anything, it's completely agnostic. PEM is very much a pure hydrogen technology and it's a low temperature technology. So if you think about that analogy with batteries and where might you use them, where a PEM fuel cell is going to get used and where a solid oxide fuel cell is going to get used, you're never going to find a solid oxide fuel cell in a passenger car. You definitely will find PEM fuel cells in passenger cars at some point, uh, whether that's a Toyota Mirai or, or someone else's vehicle. So solid oxide fuel cells are probably more broadly applicable. You could use them in heavy duty transport. And we've got a program in China working on that. You can use them in businesses for, for 
commercial power for offices, for 7-Eleven shops. Importantly, for data centers is a really big application of solid oxide fuel cells. And you'll see us working with Bosch and other companies in that sort of area. And then also the very, um, I guess, the thing that most people thought about solid oxide fuel cells for for a long time was combined heat and power. And that's a really big market in Japan. And we have a partner in Japan who's selling our product uh, called Mura, Japan's leading heating technologies company for industry. And they're selling a five kilowatt CHP device, and they're selling that to the hospitality industry, into brewing, into bars, into pubs, into 7-Eleven shops, into spas, and those sorts of things. I think that the, the difference is probably solid oxide fuel cells are, are probably a, a bit less mature, but they're much more applicable to a much wider, wider range of applications in the energy system. Maybe diving a little bit in on that, Mark, and uh, you've touched on it, obviously, but Today, what's the most common, where are the most common applications of SOFCs and where, where does Ceres see, that, see those applications branching and growing the most going forward? Probably the, the biggest current commercial application of solid oxide fuel cells is in that combined heat and power market in Japan. Not sure that's true by, by megawatts, but certainly by numbers of products sold. So the leading company there is a company called Isin, which is part of the Toyota group in Japan. And they sell products to homes and they're sort of one kilowatt micro CHP and it provides all of your hot water most of your electricity, maybe even export some electricity back to the grid. And there have been, I'm going to get the number wrong, but I think it's around about 50,000 sold to date over the last few years. And, and Japan has a target to get that number up to 5 million by the end of this decade. Well, we'll definitely fact check you uh, retrospectively on that, Mark. So, no, 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 no. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds good. So... Just in terms of the, the the kind of I suppose technology fit aspect, you know, we've obviously talked about the distinction there between the the kind of the PEM kind of requirements for hydrogen and pure play and, and the kind of like levels of purity kind of conversation. But but where's the advantage for SOFCs particularly or or solid oxide electrolyzer kind of technologies? Um, in the, the kind of forthcoming kind of hydrogen universe or economy or whatnot, like how, how do you see the, the role for SOFCs in that space? I guess there's, there's two parts to that. I think one of the, one of the premises that gets applied quite often by, by people who are looking to pick fights between technologies is that solid oxide fuel cells are not a hydrogen technology. And, th- and that's, a, that's a straight myth. So we should knock that down. A solid oxide fuel cell works just as well as a PEM on hydrogen, maybe it's even more efficient. Maybe you can get more heat out of that product for useful applications like CHP. So I guess the first the first thing is solid oxide fuel cells are a hydrogen technology, not a gas, not a natural gas technology. They happen to be also very, very good at consuming natural gas. So the the big thing that I, I see is um, there isn't going to be a, a switch. Someone who's not going to turn off the hot and turn on the cold uh, and move from natural gas to hydrogen in some of these really big energy systems, uh, whether that's the UK or Germany or, or anywhere else in the world, frankly. So if hydrogen becomes a really important part of the distribution of energy, it's going to happen in phases. It's going to be staged. So you've got a few ways of thinking about that. You could either blend more and more hydrogen into the current natural gas grid and decarbonize it that way, or maybe you can do it by regions uh, a month at a time or any of those sorts of things. So if you think about that, do you want people to not buy the most efficient technology today and wait for that magic point where there's going to be a switch to a, 
a much greener fuel that you can burn with impunity? And for me, the answer to that is no, it's crazy. What you want is a technology that's going to be works today on the current fuels and works tomorrow when there's a greener fuel. So as a transition technology and also as a technology that's ready after the transition, I think solid oxide fuel cells work extremely well in that concept. So in in, in countries that are thinking about a transition to hydrogen, I think solid oxide fuel cells are a really important technology. It's also worth recognizing there are billions of people in the world that live in countries where there's no perspective for a, a near term or even medium term hydrogen economy. So the question is, in those countries that are hooked on traditional fuels for a bit longer, do you want them to keep burning it or do you want them to find more intelligent ways of converting that fuel into electricity and the heat they need? And I think the thing the thing I often say when I'm talking to investors is a fuel cell is the most efficient way of converting fuel to electricity known to physics. That's a pretty good starting point for a technology around which you're going to build your energy system. I think one of the the interesting kind of aspects here that, that you've kind of highlighted a couple of times is around the, the CHP aspect. Um, you know, can can you maybe dive into that a little bit more just around how how your system integrates with those sort of systems and and I suppose, you know, you mentioned Japan, where there's a, a, those kind of CHP fuel cell kind of systems are, are well understood. Um, you know, how does this how does this fit into, um, I don't know, you're in the UK. So the UK's uh, next next 10, 20 years, where, where do you see your, your technology playing that kind of combined heat and power solution role? I think the UK is a really tough market for all sorts of very consumer centric reasons. I think if you if you compare a heating system in the UK, to say Germany, uh, a typical German family will spend about three times as much on their heating system as a UK family, for example. So that makes new technologies that are inevitably a bit more expensive, much harder to penetrate market and, and, and build adoption. So you really need policy actions in country like the UK to make progress on quite a lot of these things. And you, you've seen that with, with solar panels on roofs. They didn't really happen until there was a policy action. In Germany, they happened because even without policy actions, there was a really good natural business case. And there's some good reasons for that, for the way the energy systems are priced. If you look at if you look at what people call the spark spread, the difference between electricity price and gas price, in Germany, it's the largest spark spread in the world. So if you have a technology where you buy uh, natural gas and you convert it at, say, 50 or 60% efficiency, and you compare the price of the electricity you've just created compared to what you can buy from the grid, you've got a business case that might pay for a CHP product in two or three years or, or certainly five years, well within the design life. In the UK, that's really hard. In Japan, it's impossible because gas is more expensive than electricity. And, and the reason for that is Japan imports all of its gas in boats. because It's got no natural energy resources. So when you look at the tens to hundreds of thousands of fuel cells that have been deployed in Japan, it's because they've made a policy decision that fits their overall energy system. And I, I guess this is a sort of economic argument, but I think one of the things that comes up all the time is these technologies have to compete head on with today's market. And, and, and there is an issue with that because it assumes that the market's completely rational and fair. And if you look at a country like Japan, it's actually got a highly inflated gas price because no one wants them to keep buying gas. The government doesn't want to import gas. So they spend money on technologies that increase the efficiency of their use of gas. And a few years ago, there was a stat going around where um, if Japan hits that 5 million uh, home target for fuel cell micro CHP deployed by 2030, that's worth 8% on GDP because of their, their deficit of import and export of energy. So energy systems are so integrated with the way we live our lives, the way we pay our taxes, the way we 
drive our cars and all sorts of other things, even the way we go to work, that improving energy systems really needs to be a joined up policy action. I think the UK is historically pretty poor at that. Um, other countries have been historically somewhat better. And Mark, I, I wanted to, to circle back on something that you touched on uh, in a prior answer, which is, uh, as I understood it, applications for uh, solid oxide fuel cells in uh, in emerging markets. Uh, you know, and I, I take that to mean I worked in the energy sector briefly uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so that is an area of particular interest to me. And I, I wonder if you could, and it's something we don't get to talk about too much on the show uh, that I would really like to, to focus on a, a bit more. Could you maybe take us through uh, what Applicate, you know, what the applications might look like in emerging markets uh, in sort of the near, near or midterm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a question I, I wouldn't say I was an expert on. Um, I, I think when I'm thinking about uh, emerging markets, I'm thinking about uh, Brazil, India, even, even some areas of China. But I think I'd sure. make a more a more general point. I think when you think about new technologies, the, the easiest way to deploy a new technology is when there isn't an incumbent in the market. So if you think about how are you going to electrify sub-Saharan Africa in this case, but I'm not an expert, I, I might imagine that... Sure, I, I, I you, might, you, the question can be more broad, Mark. <laughs> yeah. I guess when you think about electrifying somewhere that doesn't have an energy grid already, the question is, what are you going to do and how do you get energy there? And the easiest way today to move energy around is in molecules. It's really expensive to put copper down to move electrons. So I think what you'll find is you'll find the emergence of microgrids where you're moving molecules to the place where you want to generate energy. And you'll see communities build around the sources of energy rather than building massive centralized infrastructure and then massive copper cables to move energy over thousands of miles. I think in in areas where there isn't a high degree of electrification, I think that's really compelling. Whether it works in places like Africa, where there's an enormous amount of renewable resource like wind and solar combined with batteries, then I think that's probably a more likely emergent route. But it it won't be one or the other. There'll be a degree of penetration of all those technologies. And I think that's true when you look at when you look at all the decarbonization agendas. One of the things I find really frustrating is there's such a debate about winners, which technology is going to win, what's going to capture all the market. And it's a myth. I mean, any system that's only got one vector is normally relatively unresilient. And therefore, an energy system that's got multiple vectors, whether that's batteries and renewables and fuel cells and various other technologies, will be inherently more resilient. And I think that's going to be a, a play that is really important in fuel cells in general. No, I think I think that's a really excellent point. Uh, it's something we touch on uh, in our conversations a lot that there's there's a combination play here. It's not it's not a one one solution fix all. And I, I think you make an excellent point there. We should. We should probably talk about it more frequently, Patrick, to be honest. But but uh, I, on the building on that a little bit, Mark, you know, I think we've had a lot of people, a lot of guests come on and said, you know, price is obviously one of the number one barriers that we're looking at in the hydrogen sector. Um, and I think that that's probably a, a pretty, pretty obvious and pretty good one to point out. But um, from me, from where you sit, are there any are there any other inhibiting barriers or particularly large challenges facing solid oxide fuel cell deployment? Uh, specifically that you see as something that needs to be overcome in, in order for this technology to really grab hold? I, th- I think it's a good, I think it's a good question. I think there's, there's, there are two barriers to making progress on anything. One, one is a very much a macro issue around uncertainty of what governments are going to do and how they're going to act. So I think the first thing to making progress in energy system and decarbonization full stop 
is people need to get off the fence. Governments need to get off the fence and start putting out rational policies that don't pick winners, but enable people to solve challenges uh, with, with some degree of certainty. When it comes to solid oxide fuel cells, it's, it's a good question. It's one I get a lot. And the flipping answer is no. I, I guess one of the things that I would say is I think perception around these technologies lags the reality. So people don't really think about um, solid oxide fuel cells as being a technology that's ready. In, in a lot of ways, but we've already pointed out 45,000 families in Japan have bought one from Kyocera uh, or from, from Toyota Rising. And I think there was a survey done a few years ago and it was uh, it looked at awareness in different cities. And, and if you went to London and you asked, do you know what a fuel cell is? About about 20% people would know. And if you said, where can I buy one? No one would say anything other than no. Um, if you go to Japan, about 90% of people know where you can buy one. Yeah, it's it's that fundamentally different. And there are there are there's a fantastic video of a Japanese advert of a, a lady in the advert in her soap opera uh, singing and serenading her fuel cell because it's saving her energy. Yeah, so it's 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 absolutely <laughs> plugged into the culture, and it's it's wonderful to see. That's a that's a commercial that wouldn't wouldn't fit in the United States. I'll t- <laughs> it, it wouldn't fit in the UK. So I, you could give it a go, Andrew. I mean, I love I love the commercial. I think it's great, but. But I, I guess my point is the, percep- the perception of whether these technologies are ready and being deployed uh, really lags behind the reality. If you if you look at uh, the relationships errors have built with companies like Bosch, with Weichai, with Doosan, with Mura, with Honda, all looking at how they commercialize solid oxide fuel cells today, it's a real technology. It's here. It's, um, it's the classic quote of um, uh, you can defeat all the armies in the world before you can defeat the idea whose time has come. And solid oxide fuel cells and decarbonization of energy for me is an idea whose time has come. Yeah. And I suppose, a, a, you know, a natural follow on to that, then, you know, given that that perception lag is where are the, you know, the sectors or, or are there specific kind of emerging applications maybe that you're starting to see, you know, kind of that maturity of, of kind of consumer awareness? Like, is there is there anywhere that specifically is kind of woken up, I suppose, or is starting to wake up maybe? If you see, if you assume that it's it's going to happen uh, in two parts, I think there are lots of countries, particularly in Asia, that have taken really sensible policy actions to enabling these technologies to to really come through and come down the volume curve. Japan and Korea being the really obvious ones, very strong policy actions, very favorable situations to enable commercialization and deployment. China also to a degree. I think if you look in the rest of the world, the applications that w- work really well are ones that where some additional value is created. And let me give you an example of that. In fact, there's two really good examples. One is data centers. So if you look at a data center today, if you connect it to the grid, the grid is about 99.9% reliable in a typical US state where they have these huge uh, data centers. If you're Amazon or Microsoft, all of your commerce is flowing through those data centers. Three nines reliable is nowhere near enough. So what they do is they put an uninterruptible power supply, a UPS on every computer in that huge data center. And then they have a, a building scale UPS at the boundary of the building. And then you come out of the building and they have a row of diesel gensets. And then they're worried that those diesel gensets won't start. So they put a second row of diesel gensets in and they're still not completely happy. So they put a third row of diesel gensets in and that gets them up to what they call five nine reliability. So 99.999% reliable. And if you think about that and the value of e-commerce and what they spend on that, about 25% of the cost of building a data center is about putting all of that reliability infrastructure in. 
So actually, if you can build maybe a redundant array of hundreds of small fuel cells and match them up with your rack, I've now got much better than five nines reliability without really incurring any marginal capital expenditure. And I also, because it was so big, I didn't need to reinforce the power connection to that building. So I've also diverted some other investment costs. So there's a lot of energy system value that are created by these technologies. I think the second application is is around uh, programs that we're doing with companies like Weichai on commercial vehicles. If you try and electrify a really heavy duty vehicle like a bus or a truck, you've got a huge battery in it and you might use it for your eight hour drive cycle or whatever it is. And then you need to park it up and it's got to charge and it's got to charge for some hours. So if you start to think about that in terms of the cost of my asset utilization, having technologies like fuel cells as range extenders on otherwise electric vehicles actually starts to make a big impact on how you utilize your vehicles. So that has a direct impact on the value you can create out of that product. So those are the sorts of examples where fuel cells and solid oxide fuel cells particularly create some really niche value in ways that other technologies don't do. They're not the only applications where these things will work. They will create a business uh, case for them if you stick them in any building that's got relatively high power consumption, a 7-Eleven shop with all of its fridges or a spa with relatively high heat demand. So there's lots of examples where there are natural business cases, but like any technology, what needs to happen is volume. And I think that's where the Sarah's business model comes in. I said we're, we're a licensing company, so we don't really want to make anything ourselves in the long term. And there's a reason for that. If you want to play in the energy system, you have to be able to scale very quickly. And it's very difficult for one company completely organically to build gigawatt scale factories in the world to meet these needs. And Sarah's is probably not the best company in the world to go and build a gigafactory. But companies like Bosch are, companies like Weichai are. So if you think about it, the way you scale a given technology to mass application to have a really big impact and really get down the cost curve, a licensing model is the one that helps you scale fastest and have the biggest impact that you want to achieve in terms of the energy system. Mark, we uh, we promised you we wouldn't take up too much more than a half hour of your time. And I, I'm realizing we're, we're hitting that mark uh, just this moment. But um, with that in mind, I'm going to uh, steal a question from one of my favorite uh, law professors and uh, uh, podcast host, Noah Feldman, that he likes to close out with uh, that I think we should start using a bit more. Which is uh, can't can't let you can't let you away like like Jesus oh, where's Chris <laughs> I, I'm taking Chris's role and just and falling out with way too many questions uh, but it, it's a quick one Mark and feel free to say no uh, but uh, is there a question that we should be asking that we have not asked you put more put less convolutedly is there something that you would like to touch on that we've missed I think the thing I'd say is. People need to stop looking past um, a competitions and between technologies, and we've already touched on this, and start thinking about applications and the applicability of these of these technologies. And we've talked a lot about fuel cells because it's it's exciting and it's now. And the question is, what's next? And electrolysis and technologies that can run in both directions and ultimately really start to play at both ends of the value chain for the energy system are going to be really important. For me, the the most exciting thing on this journey that we're on at the moment is the ability to really grow Sarah's and this electrochemical industry way beyond just fuel cells. People are just starting to wake up on onto that point, and that's the thing I think people need to be really excited about. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mark. We really appreciate you taking the time today. It was uh, it was a great conversation. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick.
Thanks, Mark, and appreciate your patience with the, the legal questions I came at the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was trying to throw a little curveball there. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks so no much. Problem. All right. So Chris Jackson has deemed to rejoin us uh, after the interview with Mark Selby. We'll start with him, put him on the hot seat. Chris, uh, anything stand out to you in the uh, in the chat that Patrick and I had with Mark? I, th- I think there were a couple of things. I mean, first, he's sad to miss it. Um, I, I think the team is a fantastic, and I've got the work with Elizabeth Skerritt um, from um, Sarah's Power as her role as deputy chair of the UK Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association. So I, th- I think they're a great, great team. Um, I thought there were a couple of things that I liked. One was um, the comparison between Japan and the UK in terms of consumer awareness. And I think this this is generally a very good piece to for people to understand. You know, the idea that you know twenty percent of people on the street in London might know what a fuel cell is, but none of them could tell you where to buy one. You know, whilst you know ninety percent of people in Japan could tell you where to buy one, and there's famous adverts of you know Japanese women singing about the merits of a fuel cell. It just goes to show you how important sometimes making something sexy and appealing and mass market is to trying to capture awareness. And and in a sense, I think that was kind of why a lot of companies focused on fuel cell cars in the first place, because it was meant to be something that caught people's eye and caught people's attention. And to be honest, probably the only reason why most people in the UK have heard of a fuel cell car is, sorry, fuel cell in general is because of cars. So I thought that was kind of a very interesting one, you know, and then you know, this idea of their specific model. So how they plug into other companies and other major suppliers. I thought that was also kind of interesting too, that they're kind of taking that slightly, uh, you know, you don't necessarily see the brand Ceres, but a bit like ARM, it kind of just sits behind a lot of equipment that you use. I, I thought that's a, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to get a different view on that because there are a lot of companies in the supply chain that I don't think end customers will necessarily ever know, but who are still significant companies. So getting a bit of experience and exposure to their take on that, um, I thought was good. And then I really liked, although it was a little bit niche, um, the discussion around the, um, some of the applications and notably the discussion around data centers, because actually I thought, you know, uh, people often talk about applications and say, you know, is this all just waiting on government subsidies? Is it all waiting on government grants? And actually, I think what I liked was his point around, um, you know, if you look at certain energy use cases, the uh, the way the systems are configured today actually is crazy. You know, the number of backup diesel gen sets that are required, plus the grid connection, plus everything else to get you close to five nines of reliability. Uh, and actually, the idea that you can just do that with fuel cells instead, and that you know, twenty five percent of a data center cost is just investment in reliability and resiliency. Yeah, you know, I know many about two years ago, I was speaking to Cascadian, which was a is a fuel cell um, developer and installer in Indonesia in East Timor, and they have eight hundred um, methanol fuel cell towers all across um, Indonesia and East Timor for you know uh, police centers um, and for hospitals and other parts of critical infrastructure. And it's all about reliability and um, resiliency. And I, I thought that that was a really good, tangible example of why people are looking at fuel cell systems and what they can offer that goes beyond the conversations that I think most people typically have when they talk about hydrogen. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, the, the data center issue in terms of just sheer amount of, of energy that they take to to run and their uh, reliability and resilience, I mean, that is, that's a that's a hot topic these days. So, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was a key point from his, his side as well. Uh, how about you, Patrick? Uh, anything uh, that Chris missed that stood out to you? I'm interested, maybe a, a different tack on it. Chris, you know, 
looking at that comparison between the the Japanese and, and UK markets, um, you know, how do you see, uh, you know, for instance, you know, uh, series kind of uh, technology, you know, the, the solid oxide fuel cells and, and electrolyzers, how do you see them fitting into, uh, into the UK market or, or why is it different or is their application different in the UK than, um, than, uh, than Japan, do you think? Yeah, so I think um, actually Mark spoke really well to this when he was talking about relative costs. I think most consumers in the UK really do struggle to appreciate that actually we have some of the lowest residential energy bills in Europe. Um, and certainly actually even amongst developed countries, you know, gas is extremely cheap in the UK. And it's probably the main reason why we've gotten away with having absolutely shocking insulation um, in most of our homes and really doing very little on things like double glazing of windows and all sorts of stuff is because energy is so cheap. So to his point, I think, you know, it's made it a lot harder to justify making those kinds of investments in technologies like fuel cells that can lead to material energy savings. Whereas if you look at a country like Japan, you know, where, you know, practically all the fuel is imported, it's a completely different discussion. Yeah, I think it was it was only in the last couple of years where, uh, you know, you could land um, natural gas from the United States into the UK at sort of $7 per MMBTU and you'd be buying it at, say, five or six dollars per MMBTU wholesale in the UK. And in Japan, it would be $18 per MMBTU, right? So just hugely, hugely more expensive to get natural gas and other forms of energy into Japan. Um, So of course, then consumers are absolutely at the brunt of it. And a little bit like Germany, Japan has made a conscious decision to keep costs lower for industry and make it higher for consumers. So, you know, perversely, in the UK, there's more pressure on industry to invest because they pay higher energy bills than their European counterparts, but the residential bills are lower. Whereas in Japan and in Germany and other parts of Europe, it's the other way around. And and actually South Korea is similar. Residential bills are higher, but industrial bills are lower because that's the trade that politicians have made to promote economic growth and how they want to distribute those costs. So I, I think that is a really important part of understanding why some markets have opened up for technologies like solid oxide fuel cells in the residential market in some places and looking slightly more interesting for industrial applications like the U.S. and others. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, shifting gears just slightly off of the off of that topic, Chris, um, what did you guys think? And I'll, I'll throw this out to both of you. What did you guys think about uh, about Mark's takes on um, deployment of these technologies in uh, in emerging markets? I mean, I, I, I kind of pointed to an area that is maybe a little bit uh, too much on the emerging side of things uh, with sub-Saharan Africa. But, uh, you know, Mark was talking about, uh, you know, major markets like India did you guys think? Uh, did you guys agree with his take, or or did you did you feel that there's a different way to approach it? I, I suppose that there's a big um, kind of onus right now on a lot of developed um, markets or developed potential um, kind of use cases, and you know there's a lot less emphasis, uh, particularly on um, emerging uh, kind of smaller scale or emerging markets. Um, particularly, and I think, you know, from recollection of, of, you know, Mark's points on this, I think, I think he's right in that there's, there's a lot there, uh, both in terms of opportunity and, and deployment potential, right? And depending on how you, you know, depending on how you choose to engage, uh, kind of emerging markets, you, you know, we can be talking about very, very different styles of environments, right? Like we can be talking about, 
um, you know, if, if we take the kind of CHP style uh, small unit, there's no reason um, that you couldn't have a, a structure like what you have in Japan, for instance, deployed in a lot of a lot of different regions, uh, providing you know combined heat and power solutions, right? Um, and the you know particularly from from Mark's perspective, you know the the joy of the the fuel cell that they they provide. And, you know, being dynamic, whether you put in natural gas or combinations or you put in hydrogen directly, that flexibility actually offers an interesting um, opportunity for emerging markets to start looking at transition across across different uh, different points. Right. You know, is this a, a huge aspect of of the market today? I don't think it's I don't think it's been adequately covered, uh, but that's probably because we're only really starting out in a lot of these spaces so yeah, I, I look forward to seeing the innovations that come through and the, seeing the uh, deployment opportunities that start to emerge as we as we get into the into the the mix on that. I'm a little surprised, Chris, that you so quickly threw Patrick under the bus on that one because uh, I feel like if my memory serves me correctly, you recently published a paper uh, entitled uh, "Focusing on uh, Hydrogen Technology Deployment in uh, Emerging Markets." Am I wrong about that? <laughs> well, it's not recent. Um, it was released recently. Well, it was it was published recently. I, I am aware that the timeline between uh, between completion and publication was maybe a little bit stretched. Um, but yeah, look, um, the uh, yeah, so, so I did so uh, myself and um, uh, my uh, former co colleague Fernando de Sosenas at the World Bank um, published a report um, on hydrogen in developing countries, and we did talk a lot about fuel cells, um, and we saw a lot of applications. In fact, if you go on to uh, ESMAP uh, World Bank uh, site, um, you'll actually see uh, Sarah's uh, power fuel cell uh, alongside an EV charging system inside a home in the UK. And I think it's actually got one of the Sarah's team um, it plugging in their EV with the Sarah's fuel cell in the background. So you can actually see one of the systems there. Yeah, I, I think there's a huge, huge market um, out there. I, I just, I guess the challenge that I have in the context of the UK is um, I'm looking at the current debate in the UK at the moment, and the current debate is electrification or um, hydrogen-ready boilers. And that really is being driven by the fact that it's a relatively small country, very high gas grid penetration already, and the cost of heating is relatively cheap. All of it's not a particularly good combination for um, fuel cell systems on the residential side. Um, or, and on the industrial side, People have typically gone down the gas CHP route, which has been very, very um, effective. It's been a very commercial investment and it's been you know, good for resiliency and often actually was better for CO2 when the UK gas grid had a much higher coal content on the power system. But, you know, that, that and that sort of put people off um, fuel cells on the larger stationaries. I think in general, the UK has been a tough market for stationary fuel cells. Um, but developing markets, I think it just makes a load more sense. Um, there's not just the resiliency piece, um, but, you know, Mark was also talking about the fact that it runs on multi-fuels. You know, you can use methanol, you could look at ammonia, you could use natural gas, you could use biogas, you could use hydrogen, you can use a blend. Um, these sorts of things are really important. Um, it's also, you know, PEM fuels are very, very sensitive. Low temperature fuel cells in general are quite sensitive to impurities. So having a solid oxide fuel cell that is capable of running on a much wider range is generally a very good thing. Um, and, I, and I don't think Mark talked about this, but I do think it's important in the context of developing countries is actually an air quality discussion. 
So quite often, if you go to a number of developing countries, you'll see that a lot of power is provided through backup diesel generators um, because the grid is so unreliable. Yeah. Having uh, having lived and worked in uh, Luanda, I, I can tell you right now that uh, a building is not functional in, in the commercial district without its own diesel generator. No, but exactly. And if you go to, um, you know, if you go even to certain parts of Cape Town or Johannesburg, you go to um, parts of uh, Myanmar or you go to parts of India, you know, you see similar stories in many of these places. Diesel gensets are a fact of life. Um, and not only are they very inefficient, but actually also the air quality impact is significant. So having a very small portable fuel cell system that is much more efficient and that has much better impact for air quality is is a hugely positive angle. The, the question then is a business model one. How do you get around the fact that they do have a higher capex and that right now there are not technicians in those countries that can easily repair them in the same way that someone can take apart a diesel generator and put it back together again? Those are business model challenges. Um, and they will come in the same way that we've seen soda and battery um, innovations come to developing markets and have an enormous impact. Thinking here of companies like uh, B-Box, is that the one, Andrew? The one that's in Congo and I think was, again, in a lot of West Africa that do the kind of least solar and battery solution for small businesses. Uh, I actually, you broke up there, Chris. What was the, uh, what was the name of the company you were suggesting? Uh, B-Box. Okay, I mean, I'm not I'm not familiar with that specific company, but yeah, I mean, the the that sort of uh, leasing leasing model has definitely caught on. Uh, certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, in my personal experience, as far as I'm aware, it's a model that you're seeing deployed more and more aggressively, uh, you know, throughout throughout the region. And you're seeing companies like SFC Energy, which is a competitor to Ceres that does also provide a fuel cell and um, solar oxide fuel cell offering. And they, they are in a number of developing countries um, for that region. That the reason that they are much more fuel ambivalent and they are much less sensitive to impurities and, and they can be a bit more rugged. So I think they will pick up there very quickly once the business models follow them. You know, once you've got a few people willing to go into the markets, willing to look at leases, willing to do the maintenance, I think those angles absolutely will come. And, you know, I think Phil didn't really talk about uh, sorry, Phil, Mark didn't really talk about it, but um, mobility is the other really interesting one for me, you know, is, is how do systems like a solid oxide fuel cell offer interesting angles for large mobility? Because as someone's pointing out to me the other day, there is um, PEM fuel cells are great for responding rapidly. Um, and that's very appropriate for smaller mobility systems, but for very large mobility platforms um, where you actually have a certain residual base level of power demand um, that runs through the system, it, it actually may make a lot of sense from a cost perspective and an efficiency perspective to meet that load with a solid oxide fuel cell. Um, and that's something that the market has been talking about in very kind of hushed tones, but hasn't really come to the fore in mainstream discussions. And I think that's a really interesting area that I guess if we had time and I'd be able to join in, um, would have been able to push them on, but maybe we can push them on another time. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll let I'll let Patrick uh, address the the mobility side of that equation. I mean, I, I would quickly point out, if I understood uh, Mark correctly, and uh, 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 how series is structured and set up, I mean, it, it's largely like a design and licensing firm. And Chris, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but uh, you know, the the advantage for sort of emerging market uh, emerging market deployment from that sort of business model is that. Uh, you know, it offers them the flexibility to uh, license designs 
to local, you know, maybe not local, but regional manufacturing companies, right? So somewhere like Sub-Saharan Africa, you could uh, a South African company, South African manufacturer could license that design and become a, a regional manufacturer, right? And that would certainly uh, accelerate deployment in that kind of a region. Um, but Patrick, I'll let you uh, touch on the uh, the mobility side of, of Chris's point. Maybe to, to bring this this back to, um, to kind of more common themes as well, right? Like like in every market and every um, sector that we we talk about, we talk about use case specific, right? So region specific, use case specific kind of applications and advantages and et cetera, et cetera. This is the same thing. It's the same point again, right? So where you have specific constraints and you're trying to address, you know, how do you design a system that allows for you know, non-disruption of X or allows you to do X, right? Um, this is this is how we do it, and and particularly in emerging markets, you're dealing with different, um, you know, you're you're often dealing with different constraints, uh, but also, you know, and and this is the one thing we, you know, you hear, you know, spoken about in reference to to microgrid systems, and I presume some of the companies you guys uh, mentioned. Are, are kind of involved in this, but these, uh, you know, the, the fact that you maybe don't have a, as, as, you know, kind of large an infrastructure build out, or maybe it's more concentrated into, you know, specific kind of hubs or regions, you also get a potential for kind of distributed um, resiliency and, and, and distributed um, kind of build out, right? So in that sense, hypothetically, if you think about, you know, uh, fueling stations, um, and the development of fueling stations, right? Uh, hypothetically, in, in a, some emerging markets where maybe you don't have grid connection in the same breath, you, you have a prime opportunity to develop a microgrid to provide locally produced hydrogen for trucks, right? Uh, cars, et cetera, et cetera. But it is all about just designing for, for the, the challenge. And, and, you know, look, I think there's a good play here in terms of the, the mobility aspect in some places. Um, Going back to, to Chris's point about you know certain smaller markets, there being kind of constraints in 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 kind of deployment at, at certain use points. Um, you know where you're talking about the conventional things around that we talk about around mobility, which is you know duration, weight, um, and kind of uh, re, kind of a refueling sensitivities. If if you have those uh, in certain markets, the the value proposition exists now. Is that to say that we won't, you know, have the same common thre- or threads or strands that we see in uh, in a lot of other countries and a lot of more mature markets? Um, you know, where you see like maybe uh, battery electrification in urban centers and and maybe potential for kind of hydrogen use case in kind of more kind of uh, you know broader kind of use case or hybrid systems. I think those very same value propositions hold. So we once more kind of come back to the thing that we we always hark on about, which is that when you're when you're in a specific use case uh, uh, or, or you're looking at a specific use case, you're designing the system to to fit the need. And and I think there's a there's a likely good set of use cases in in some emerging markets around this. Patrick, I think you've done yet again a beautiful job of tying all of our all of our loose ends back together. So uh, kudos to you on that one, bud. Uh, and I think we're gonna have to leave it there for this week. So that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge thank you to Mark Selby, CTO of Series Power, for joining us on the show today. Great to hear Mark's thoughts on the SOFC and SOE space and much more. Thank you as always to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. 
And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Hope you'll join us again next time on Everything About Hydrogen when we will be speaking with Rob Delcor of Ricardo PLC. Rob is one of the original leaders in the hydrogen-based mobility and transportation system space, and we will cover a lot of ground with him on our next episode, so be sure not to miss that one. Thank you.